note before we begin. This episode contains discussions of suicidal ideation. Listener discretion is advised, especially for those under 13. It's November 1977. Some of the world's top chess players are gathered in New York City's Upper East Side for the Hunter College High School Tournament. For Peter Winston, the event should be routine. At just 19 years old, he's close to becoming a Grand Master, the highest title you can achieve in the sport. He's expected to rack up a few easy wins today, improve his standing, and get on with his life. But in a surprise upset, he loses his first match, then the second, and the third. It's one shocking defeat after another. By the end of the tournament, Peter's 0-9, no wins, no draws. The showing baffles the chess world. One official believes it's statistically impossible for a player as skilled as Peter to lose so many matches in a row. So they actually suggest he threw all or some of the games on purpose. Maybe he did. Peter's lived with high expectations his entire life. Maybe he had enough of the burnout and wanted to sabotage himself, but it's also possible he genuinely tried that day and failed to win a match. After all, Peter's showing at this tournament sends him reeling, and within two months, he goes missing. I'm Sarah Turney, and this is Disappearances, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Thursday, I'll discuss a new missing person case ripped from history. I want to better understand the many reasons people disappear, and the impact their absences can have on those left behind. Today, I'm telling the story of a chess prodigy and child genius who walked into a record-breaking blizzard and was never seen again. His name is Peter Winston. Auto insurance can all seem the same until it comes time to use it. So don't get stuck paying more for less coverage. Switch to USA Auto Insurance and you could start saving money in no time. Get a quote today. Restrictions apply. USAA. This episode is brought to you by The Weather Channel. The key to solving any mystery? Smart decisions based on the facts. In the case of the weather's effect on your well-being, turn to the Weather Channel app. It clues you in on how weather shapes your mood, health, and productivity with insights built on reliable forecast data to help you thrive. Because mystery belongs in true crime, not weather. Be a force of nature with the Weather Channel app. If you followed the Olympic Games during the summer of 2021 at all, you heard the discourse around Simone Biles. In case you need a reminder, Biles is one of the greatest athletes of all time. In July 2021, she failed to complete a stunt during an Olympic vault routine. Afterward, she withdrew from the competition. She said she was suffering from the twisties. It essentially means her mind wasn't in the game. Simone couldn't focus and she didn't want to risk injury or death by attempting elite gymnastics moves when she wasn't fully confident in her abilities. Just over a month earlier, tennis champion Naomi Osaka withdrew from Wimbledon to focus on her mental health. These decisions should be celebrated. Our society has a way of pushing our heroes to the breaking point. 
Of course, who can forget Britney Spears' very public breakdown at the height of her career? It led to a conservatorship that finally ended in 2021 after lasting almost 14 years. It kind of feels like we're just now reckoning with all of the ways pressure and expectations can destroy lives. Which may be why the story of Peter Winston feels so timely. Peter's born in New York City. He teaches himself the alphabet at one and a half, starts reading around his second birthday, and by three, he can calculate fractions. At six, he gives an interview with the Saturday Evening Post, where he tells a reporter, quote, I think I have a sickness that only I know about and nobody else can understand. I don't think I know how to love, end quote. It's a stunning statement for anyone to make, but especially a first grader. Peter's acutely aware of the fact that he's different, and not just because of his high IQ. He's worried that he's somehow broken. It's a feeling that seems to follow him into the next chapter of his life. See, the story of Peter Winston the Prodigy begins in 1967, when he's nine years old. After his father dies of a heart attack, he tries his hand at chess. Apparently, his dad never wanted him playing the game. He worried Peter would get too obsessed with it and abandon mathematics, which he felt was Peter's true calling. And his father's fears might have been justified. Almost immediately after Peter starts, he becomes a chess phenomenon, and the game consumes his life. He gets his first write-up in Chess Life magazine when he's just 10 years old. By March 1971, he's named the best player in the U.S. under the age of 16. After that, Peter pretty consistently holds a top spot in the rankings. There's a downside to his success, though. According to psychiatrist Marie-Noelle Gonry-Tardy, it's common for child prodigies to feel an intense pressure to succeed. And alongside all this acclaim, Peter's faced with high expectations and mounting external pressures. By the time he's 12 years old, he gives an interview with an educational researcher saying he's, quote, sick and tired of the daily grind, end quote. Now, he seems to realize he needs a break. Before his 13th birthday, he publicly announces that he's thinking about quitting chess entirely, but he never follows through. He keeps playing, and by October 1971, his scores in chess life have him ranked alongside adult players, despite him being the age of an eighth grader. Peter does make some major changes to his life, though. That same year, he decides he can't stay in a traditional school system anymore. He finds his classes boring, and he thinks he'll feel better if he has more independence. So he gets together with several other gifted students and starts his own high school. I know, wild, right? It's a brick and mortar classroom and they call it the Elizabeth Cleaner Street School. For many teenagers, this would be a dream come true. When all's said and done, Peter gets to pick his own classes, lead discussions, and basically direct his own education at age 13. But as you can imagine, starting a brand new school does little to lower Peter's stress levels. He's got a hand in pretty much everything. 
hiring teachers, promoting enrollment, writing proposals, the whole nine yards. Peter even tries to open a bank account for the school, but the tellers turn him away because he's so young. So some of the founder's parents have to step in to help. Now, it's tempting to fall back on stereotypes here, to assume that because Peter's so smart, he's taking classes like Latin and theoretical physics and advanced calculus. But instead, Peter pushes to expand his horizons. He and his classmates propose courses like surrealism, women's and men's liberation, history of drugs, and macrame. They want to change the way people think about education and empower children to make informed decisions about their lives. It's exciting, bold, and ambitious. Another notch in Peter's belt. But because of Peter's achievements, it's easy to lose sight of the fact that at the end of the day, he's still an ordinary teenage boy. He follows pro sports and loves playing pickup soccer with his friends. He's a picky eater who has the same thing for lunch every day. A couple slices of tinfoil wrapped salami with a banana on the side and some milk. Peter's also charismatic with a snarky sense of humor. His friend Richard Brody describes him as someone with, quote, a strong instinctive warmth and a joy in friendship, end quote. To me, it sounds like Peter's one of those people who everyone respects and admires, but nobody gets to know well. This leaves Peter feeling disgruntled. By the spring of his first year at Elizabeth Cleaners, Peter starts skipping class. A teacher asks what's going on, and Peter basically says he's not getting anything out of his schoolwork. He's still bored and now he's lonely. He feels lost with the lack of structure. His teacher promises to find a way to make the system work for him. But as far as I can tell, nothing seems to improve. Potentially because around this time, the students and teachers at Elizabeth Cleaners get a book deal. They're basically asked to write about their experience creating the school. Peter contributes a short chapter, less than two pages long, and he doesn't have many positive things to say. In one paragraph, he writes, This school has been harmful to me. For the greater part of this year, I have done little reading and no writing. I no longer do any self-satisfying work. I have no really close friends. Now, you could chalk this up to a disorganized, poorly run school. I mean, what do you expect when 13-year-olds make a lot of the major decisions? But based on Peter's behavior outside of the classroom, there are other factors at play. He's likely suffering from burnout. By 1973, Peter's 15. He's left the Elizabeth Cleaner Street School, but he's still playing chess and he's caught the attention of the LA Times. They're writing features about him. Two years later, his name is popping up in newspapers all around the world, from Boston to British Columbia, Canada. He even pens an article in Chess Life, where he deconstructs a game he won against a grandmaster. By the fall of 1975, he's finished high school early, and he enrolls at Franconia College in New Hampshire. He may be the youngest kid on campus, but by all accounts, Peter does well in his new environment. At first. His teachers keep him engaged. He develops an interest in politics, voicing his criticisms of the United States' involvement in the Cold War during classes. 
He even hints that he's optimistic about his love life. But this optimism only lasts for about a semester. The following spring, Peter reportedly starts to struggle with his mental health. He checks into a medical facility for help. There, he's diagnosed with a mental health condition. Now, diagnosis is an important first step on the road to understanding, to a healthier lifestyle, to finding treatments that work for you. But when a condition is mistreated, there can be horrible consequences. And this seems to be the case for Peter, because soon he finds himself on the path to self-destruction. When he's 18 years old, Peter Winston is hospitalized and diagnosed with schizophrenia. The treatments his doctors recommend don't improve his mental state. So the physicians offer a new diagnosis, manic depressive disorder, or as it's known today, bipolar disorder. He's initially prescribed chlorpromazine, followed by lithium, and Peter struggles with his medication. Peter tells his friends and family, anyone who will listen, that he can't think straight anymore. Now, both chlorpromazine and lithium can have serious side effects, like memory problems, shortness of breath, and seizures. It's also worth mentioning that there's research to support the argument that the misuse of any antipsychotic medication can actually cause substantial harm to patients. To complicate matters further, Peter doesn't fully trust his psychiatrist. He doesn't think that his complaints are being taken seriously enough. Whether there's any truth to these claims or not, shortly after Peter starts taking lithium, his chess career takes a dramatic turn for the worst. Almost overnight, Peter goes from one of the top players in the world to being incapable of winning a game. I opened this episode by talking about a tournament in November 1977. In it, Peter goes 0 for 9, losing to players he should be able to beat easily. Well, around the time this happens, Peter quits lithium cold turkey, which according to experts can be dangerous. Officials with the National Institute of Mental Health say that no one should stop taking a prescription medication without talking to a doctor first. If someone quits a medication cold turkey or their intake drops precipitously, they might experience something called the rebound effect. Their symptoms can actually become more severe for a period of time while their body tries to adjust to the sudden change. Although I can't definitively say if Peter experienced a rebound effect, after he quit his meds, his behavior becomes erratic. He stops bathing and sleeping on a regular schedule. His hygiene becomes so poor that his friend's mother has to have his bedding fumigated after a short stay with them. And in January 1978, Peter places an alarming phone call to a friend. Peter's 19 when he calls up a friend, Charles Hurtan. When he answers Peter's call, he immediately knows something's wrong. Peter's freaking out. He sounds irritable and excited. He's talking a million words a minute. And for some reason, he insists that Charles needs to come over right away. Now, Charles can tell that Peter needs help 
but he's not exactly in a position to offer any. His grandfather recently passed away. He can't just drop everything and go visit. So he tells Peter he's dealing with family business at the moment. Peter says he totally understands, then hangs up. But Charles doesn't forget about the call. A week later, he steals away some time to pay Peter a visit. And he's horrified by the way Peter lives. Peter's apartment is filthy, swarming with cockroaches. And Peter's as dirty as his home. He looks like he hasn't bathed in weeks. As Charles is taking everything in, out of nowhere, Peter announces he has bipolar disorder. It's the first time Charles is hearing about any of this. But Peter goes on and on before adding that he stopped taking his medication. Then, while Charles is still processing the news, Peter switches topics entirely and asks Charles if he wants to go down to the Meadowlands racetrack to place some bets. Not knowing what else to do, Charles agrees to go. They hop on a bus and get to Meadowlands late in the evening. They gamble for about an hour, and then the night catches up with Charles. He's tired and wants to go home. But Peter's nowhere near slowing down. If anything, he's more energized than ever. When Charles says it's time to leave, Peter gets angry. He storms off in a huff and disappears into a crowd. After looking for Peter everywhere, Charles decides to head out and leave his friend behind. Now, this may not sound super responsible, but remember, Charles is 17 years old at this point. Of course he doesn't know how to respond to his friend's erratic behavior. I can't imagine he understands the gravity of the situation. He probably figures Peter's the adult. He can take care of himself. After Charles leaves, Peter gambles the rest of the money he has on him. Come closing time, he doesn't have enough cash for the bus fare home. He's stranded at Meadowlands. He calls someone he used to play chess with, John Fedorovich, and asks for a ride home. John is shocked to hear from Peter. They've never been close, just competitors. Plus, John isn't even at home. He's staying with a friend. He has no idea how Peter figured out where he is or how he got the number of his friend's landline. So it's a little more than alarming and John has no intention of dragging himself out of bed in the middle of the night to pick up a casual acquaintance. Even if he wanted to, he couldn't. He doesn't have a car or a license. After that conversation goes nowhere, Peter is down to his last quarter. He can't afford to waste another call, so he dials someone he knows won't tell him no. His older sister, Wind. In the middle of the night, Wind picks up Peter and lets him crash at her place. It's obvious something's wrong with her brother. The next morning, she tells Peter she's concerned. He can stay with her as long as he needs to, but under one condition. He needs to agree to get medical help. The conversation doesn't go well. Peter refuses. He leaves in such a frenzy that he doesn't grab his coat on the way out, which is concerning because a winter storm is brewing. A bad one. Soon, snow will fall all over the Northeast. By Monday morning, more than two feet will blanket Boston and Providence, Rhode Island. Major highways will come to a standstill. 
with cars buried up to their hoods. It'll get so bad that in Connecticut, Governor Grasso will shut down every road and freeway except for emergency vehicles. The storm will cause more than $520 million in property damage, the equivalent of more than $2 billion in 2021. Thousands of people will report injuries and about a hundred die. But for now, as Peter slams the door behind him and leaves his sister's place, the blizzard hasn't really started yet. Out in the cold, Peter heads to a friend's house on foot. Their identity has never been made public, but it's safe to assume they're another teenager or young adult because they live with their parents. The family invites Peter to join them for lunch. Peter's behavior is still unpredictable. He mumbles under his breath as he eats. The family can't quite follow what he's saying, but they piece together what they can. Peter mentions something about wanting to go to Texas. Apparently, he wants to meet up with some author who's written a lot about chess. It doesn't sound to anyone like it's a serious planned trip, or like the writer is expecting him, especially after Peter says he thinks the author might be God. Worried, at some point, the family calls Peter's mother Florence and tells her something's wrong with her son. She agrees to come pick Peter up, but she never gets the chance. Before she arrives, Peter slips out of the apartment unnoticed. And he's never seen again. Nineteen-year-old Peter Winston disappears sometime in early 1978. It's difficult to pinpoint a date, partly because his family never officially reports him missing, as available police records suggest. They'll reportedly explain that they assumed he checked himself into a mental health facility for treatment, but it's unclear where that assumption came from. It doesn't seem that anyone ever got any calls from a doctor. Now, I don't know why the Winston family isn't more concerned. Peter stormed off without a coat during a record-breaking weather emergency, at least according to some accounts. Many of Peter's loved ones agree that he went missing in late January, but the problem with that timeline is they also say he disappeared during the Northeast blizzard of 78, a storm that didn't start until the afternoon of February 5th. That being said, a bad snowstorm did hit New York City in late January. A different one. It's actually considered the worst blizzard in a decade, a designation that only lasts for two weeks, until the blizzard of 78 hits. It shuts down schools and businesses. Hospitals cancel all non-emergency surgeries. 13 people die, and a few building roofs collapse under the weight of the snow. Maybe Peter's family and friends accidentally conflated the two storms later and or got the dates mixed up. I've done some digging to check if any formal searches for Peter were conducted during or after either blizzard, and I couldn't find anything. Of course, that doesn't mean Peter's loved ones gave up on him. It could just mean their efforts didn't make the news. Peter's childhood friend, Richard Brody, believes the Winstons must have scoured the city for Peter. He doesn't believe Florence and Wind would just sit back and do nothing. 
Personally, I'm hesitant to speculate about what Peter's family may have felt or thought in the days after he went missing, but I can speak with more confidence on how they view his disappearance today, more than four decades later. For the most part, many who personally knew Peter believe he was one of the roughly 100 people who died during the blizzard of 78. It's possible that some of the deceased were never identified, presumably because there were so many unhoused individuals without family or friends to contact, but it's hard to say for sure. It's safe to assume that some of the storm's victims are buried on Hart Island, a cemetery just off the shores of New York City. When a person dies and there's nobody around to claim the body, they're usually interred there. Currently, there are hundreds of graves that haven't been identified, but without records, it's impossible to say whether Peter is one of them or if he's dead at all. Maybe he did check himself into a facility and get the help he needed. Maybe he faked his own death. For decades after his disappearance, Florence saves all of her son's possessions. His books, his clothes, his chessboards. She keeps them in his bedroom, so it's ready for him should he ever come home. Florence passes away in 2010 without ever reuniting with her son. As of this recording, there are still loved ones out there waiting for confirmation of what happened to him. If he's alive, Peter Winston would be 63 years old today. He has dark blonde hair, hazel eyes, and a slim build. His ears are on the larger side, and he tends to be talkative. It's hard to say how Peter might be managing his bipolar disorder, if he is at all. As you might imagine, there are still plenty of questions about his mental state at the time of his disappearance. It's possible that when he left his friend's house, he wanted to die and walked out into the storm knowing it would likely kill him. Sadly, suicidal ideation is all too common among people with bipolar disorder. But Charles Hurtan, Peter's friend who went to the racetrack with him, doesn't believe that's the case. After Peter's disappearance, Charles actually became a professional therapist, so today he can spot the signs of suicidal ideation, and he doesn't think Peter fits the profile. More likely, he believes Peter wasn't thinking clearly. Between the lithium withdrawal and his untreated bipolar disorder, he didn't realize how much danger he was in until it was too late. Whatever happened to Peter, alive or dead, a victim of a preventable accident or intentional self-harm, one thing's clear. Peter's mental health condition played a role in his disappearance. It's hard not to wonder whether if Peter received proper treatment and support, he would have become a chess grandmaster. Maybe he would have continued his education and lived a long, healthy, and happy life, in touch with his family and friends. Or maybe he would have stepped out of the limelight entirely to live his life free from expectations. Either way, I'd totally understand. And I want to end this episode by saying, there's never any shame in asking for help. If you or someone you know is struggling with their mental health, please know there's hope. I'll be including resources at the end of this episode. If you want to, you can skip ahead a bit and find them now. 
I also want you to know that you don't need to be in a crisis to take your mental health seriously. Feeling good is great, and there are so many preventative care options these days that can help you stay that way, from in-person therapy to online support professionals and more. Maintaining your mental well-being is just as important as maintaining your physical health. I really hope the recent discourse around people like Simone Biles, Naomi Osaka, and Britney Spears help us reshape the way we view success. Perhaps in the future, we'll normalize prioritizing their mental health, regardless of their IQ, circumstances, or celebrity. We'll all have access to and feel comfortable tapping into support systems. But as we'll find out next week, Sometimes it's our support systems that put us in harm's way. Next episode. When Stacy Peterson goes missing in 2007, the clues left behind paint a terrifying portrait of a cover-up and a marriage gone horribly wrong. Thank you for listening. In the time it took you to listen to this episode, 30 people disappeared in the United States alone. If you or someone you know needs assistance with a missing person case, please visit seasonofjustice.org. Season of Justice is a nonprofit organization that provides funding to law enforcement agencies and families to help solve cold cases. For full disclosure, I am a member of the board. It's a great resource for both law enforcement and families in order to bring closure to those impacted by unsolved violent crime. Also, if you or someone you know has mental health-related questions or are going through a crisis, you can contact the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. They're available 24 hours a day, seven days a week at 1-800-273-8255. Or you can speak to them online at suicidepreventionlifeline.org. You can also call the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration National Hotline. They can provide information on support and treatment facilities in your area. The SAM-HSA hotline is also available 24 hours a day, seven days a week at 1-800-662-4357. That's 1-800-662-4357. I'd like to thank Dr. David Kipper, MD, for lending his expertise and providing insights on this story. You can find all episodes of Disappearances and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Disappearances stars Sarah Turney and is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Alex Button, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Disappearances was written by Angela Jorgensen, with writing assistance by Nora Battelle and Connor Sampson fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Mickey Taylor. To hear more stories hosted by me, check out my other podcast, Voices for Justice.